Hello, my friends. Welcome to the webinar. I am Rick Thomas, and I'm glad that you have joined me for this webinar. The title of it is Sympathy and Empathy, probably two of the most important words that you will ever hear when it comes to disciple-making and soul care practices. In this webinar, I am going to unpack both of these words. I'm going to apply them practically. I'm going to warn you about the dangers of one of them, that is empathy, and I'm going to speak highly and encourage you to grow into a sympathetic disciple maker. I titled this webinar, Sympathy and Empathy, I subtitled it, You Must Know This. Again, this is critical information. For those of you who are listening to this webinar by audio, thank you so much for listening. I'm glad that we have the ability to provide our webinars in audio and that you're taking the time to, you're taking the time to listen to it. But if you do have the time to go on our website to our webinar page where we have our one-hour webinars, we have a lot of them, I hope that you will be able to have, take the time, make the time, so where you can watch this critical soul care disciple-making webinar, again titled Sympathy and Empathy, subtitle, You Must Know This. As always, if you have any questions for our ministry, please jump on our forums. We have interactive forums, and we would love to engage you. The big idea in this webinar is if you do not have a working definition of sympathy, and empathy, and more vitally, a practical application of those two words. You may do much harm to those who need your care the most. And so this presentation is an exploration of clearing up the ambiguity between sympathy and empathy. When it comes to soul care, we have a lot of webinars on how to diagnose the heart, how to identify idols of the heart, how to overcome fear of man, how to overcome self-reliance, etc. All of those are essential and they have a place in our ministry. They have a place when it comes to soul care practices. But this one here, knowing the difference between sympathy and empathy, and then growing into a sympathetic disciple-maker, it could be uh, the, most in, the most important webinar of the entire group that we have. Now, the way that I want to begin this is by just giving you a, an etym etymological definition of what sympathy is and also empathy. So I'll start with sympathy. There are three words that I want to put forth as a good definition for this webinar. These three words are a link, linkage. They are a sequence, and they go like this. Here they are, with feeling and suffering. Those are the three words. Now, the key word, maybe the most essential word, is the preposition with, because you will find that when I define the word empathy, that there will be another preposition there, and it will make all the difference in the world. And so sympathy is with. You are with them. You are alongside them. The word feeling, I'm talking about understanding. Again, the etymological definition of, of sympathy is with feeling and suffering, but I'm translating feeling, you're, you're understanding them. So you're with them, you understand them. What do you understand? You understand the suffering, the situational difficulty, the problem that they are having. And so it could sound like this, is two or more people with, they're together, they're with each other. Feeling, understanding, 
And so one person is the struggler, the person who is hurting, and the other person, the sympathetic caregiver, they are with that individual. They are understanding what are they understanding? They're understanding the suffering, the difficulty that is happening to the individual. And so sympathy is you're with them, you're understanding them, and of course you're understanding the suffering or the difficulty. All right, let me apply that. I'll use a medical model here because it's easy to understand. A doctor applying medicine to a wound, that's the illustration. Now, in this scenario, the doctor is with the person. They are beside the person in the room. They're with them, and they understand the problem. That's the word feeling. So they understand exactly what's going on. They're with the person. And by implication, the doctor goes beyond just understanding the problem, but they bring restorative care to the sufferer, to the suffering. Uh, hopefully they remove the suffering because they understand it so well. And so it's coming alongside with, is caring for them, feeling, but not delivering restorative care. Well, that would be incomplete sympathy. And so you're with them. You gave them a Bible cliche. Uh, you gave them a Bible bullet, uh, but it didn't bring restorative care. That's not sympathy. And so sympathy is all three words. You're with them, you understand the problem, and you bring restorative care. And so that's a good working definition of sympathy. Now let's look at empathy. Three words again, and I'm only going to change the preposition. The preposition is in, I-N, instead of the word with. And so now you're in the problem. You have you have jumped in with them. You're not beside them. You're in it with them, understanding it. Of course, that's going to change understanding. You see, if you're alongside them, with them, you can not only understand them and what they're going through, but you can see the bigger picture as well. But once you jump into the pond with them, then your scope, your peripheral vision is going to be diminished significantly. And so in is a crucial word, the preposition in, when it comes to defining empathy. So you're now in it with them, you're understanding, but you're understanding with a limited scope, and of course, they're suffering, and it's going to be hard to bring restorative care because you're too close to it to understand them well. Perhaps two other words to help understand the preposition in, I-N, would be infuse or to assimilate, and so you could say you assimilate in them, you infuse two helpful words to understand this preposition. Now, to illustrate empathy... I want to use another kind of, of illustration. I want to flip empathy around and look at it from the victim's perspective. Now, what happens typically with a sufferer who is beholding to an empathetic model of soul care is that they project themselves and their pain into the helper. And there is an expectation that the counselor or the discipler, they must become like the hurting person, understanding it just like the hurting person, as in a mirror image of the hurting person. And if they don't get it at that level of understanding, then they are not genuinely empathetic. 
Now, that is a truncated way of doing soul care, and it is dangerous. And one of the things that's required of good disciple makers is to have the courage to not jump in to the pond with them, limiting your scope, thus limiting your ability to care for the person effectively. Typically, the expectant recipient of empathy has understanding them as the number one thing they want from a soul care provider. The best illustrations for empathy have something to do with jumping in with the hurting to know them according to how the sufferer wants you to understand them. See, they have a limited scope. They can only see what they see, and they want to make sure that you see what they see, but there will be some resistance or hesitancy if you see a bigger picture and you try to communicate to them things that they need to see, but they refuse to see because they are empathetic. They're beholding to an empathetic model. Therefore, the victim determines the kind of care they receive as opposed to the sympathetic doctor. You see, the accent mark is not on the patient providing care. It's on the doctor. He's with them. He understands the problem inside and out, not only what they see and understand, but he sees the bigger picture. Therefore, he can bring restorative care. And so the victim does not determine the kind of care that they are going to receive. It is the person that's providing the care. And so you have to determine, am I going to be in or out? Am I going to be in, empathetic, or with, with them? Or in this case, I say in or out. And one of the things that the empathetic person will say clearly and and it can also almost be manipulative. They will say, "You don't understand me." Uh, you'll hear a teenage child say that you don't understand me. What they don't understand is the parent actually does understand them because the parent was that teenage child. That parent had those cravings, had those desires, had those fears, had that angst. The parent does understand, but now the parent is 20 or 30 years older, and they understand more. But if the teenager is is only beholding to an empathetic model of soul care, they have limited their scope, and they will say, you don't understand me, and that would be a temptation for you to to truncate your scope and only see it from one perspective rather than a more comprehensive perspective. So your child is drowning. Your teenage child is drowning. What will you do? Esther Ingles Arkel made this statement talking about the idea of rescuing someone who is drowning, talking about lifeguards and water safety. She said this, If you witness someone drowning, most emergency responders agree that what you need to do is to look around for something buoyant before you even get in the water. Get in a boat or try to throw the drowning person something from shore. Swimming to someone who's drowning and trying to take hold of them is dangerous even for professionals. If you are an empathetic disciple maker, an empathetic counselor, if you swim to them and try to take hold of them, the chances of either of you surviving is slim. There's a reason why lifeguards carry those orange plastic buoys, and it's not their need to accessorize. Throwing a drowning person something to keep them afloat so they don't hang on to you 
is essential. That is Esther and Gless Arkle, and that is wise counsel uh, if you're going to be a lifesaver. And I think most people understand that. You see, understanding a person is more complex than just understanding the person. Let me explain. You see, understanding a person in a very narrow sense is understanding what they see, understanding their perspective, understanding their presupposition, their worldview, understanding their shaping influences. All those things are absolutely critical, understanding what happened to them. You have to understand that, but you have to go beyond that. You have to see what they cannot see. You have to have a broader perspective on what is happening in this situation, not only having that kind of discernment, that kind of insight, but there will come a time where you will need that kind of courage to stand on the outside, not jump in. You're with them, you're sympathetic, but you will need courage to give them what they may not be anticipating. Part of the problem is ethical relativism. And what I mean by that, ethical relativism is the doctrine that there are no absolute truths in ethics. That what is morally right or wrong varies from person to person or from society to society. And many Christians are this way. We have drifted from the truth of God's word, and we have become ethical relativist, where what is important to me, what do I want, regardless of what the Bible says, or out of ignorance of not understanding what the Bible says and what I truly need, and so we all can be ethical relativists. Morality is beholden to the expected and accepted norms of the current culture, or you can refine that and say morality is beholden to the expected and accepted norms of the individual that you're caring for. And if you put the act accent mark on the victim where they are driving, just like you put the accent mark on the patient to where they are driving how soul care happens, then you are in a dangerous place. Uh, This is happening in our trans culture. Uh, This is an accommodating therapy that we have now. It's called affirm affirm therapy or affirmative care. And that's where the patient comes in and they tell you what is wrong with them and they tell you what they need. And then the doctor begins to begins a process from an affirmative care perspective. They jump in with them. And of course, many of these trans people who who do that find themselves detransitioning because it was a mistake, but they would not listen to uh, what a comprehensive soul care or medical provider would offer them because they were beholding to ethical relativism. And so if you apply relativism, then it, was, it would be something like this. You can't tell me what I don't want to hear. And so now you're, let's say it's not a trans person in my last illustration, but it is a, it's that teenager again, where if you, if you go beyond understanding them the way they want to be understood, uh, then they will put up a wall because they don't want to hear anything else beyond what they hope to gain from this situation. And so they will say, you can't tell me what I don't want to hear. Remember the Me Too movement so, uh, just a few years ago where we believe all women. We do believe women. We believe men. We believe truth. Uh, we believe legitimate claims. But if if 
ethical relativism is the norm, and we put the accent mark on the victim or the supposed victim, uh, then we're all in a bind. Uh, We're in a box canyon that we can't get out of, and we can only provide care according to the patient or according to the victim. And again, that's not comprehensive care. Now, it's important at this juncture of the webinar to make a statement that I think uh, many of you are already thinking about. Sympathy does not dismiss legitimacy. It doesn't. I am not saying that the person's experience is untrue necessarily. I am not saying that we just want to talk past them and and blow past them and not try to understand them. No, I am saying we want to do that plus we want to understand them plus. And so therefore, we do not dismiss legitimacy. There is no place for a lack of compassion in soul care practices. You know, I talked about having courage, which a sympathetic soul care provider must have. But what the companion of courage is, is compassion. What we need in addition to courage, we need compassion. And both of those things work in tandem. Think about it this way. Uh, let's say that the sympathetic model was just courage and no compassion. Well, then you could be harsh and unkind and dismissive, and that would be a painful experience for the person that you're caring for. But let's say that you have compassion, but you have no courage. That would be empathy, where you jump into their story. You jump into the pond with them because you have compassion, but you have no courage. And so you need both of those together. You need compassion, and you need courage. If you do not have either one of those, you will either be empathetic, which would be terrible, or you'll be sympathetic. You'll be with them and courageous, but it will be a painful experience for the person that you're caring for. So sympathy does not dismiss legitimacy. See, in the photography world, there is a macro lens and a micro. There is a a pinpoint which is micro, where you can dial right in on the subject and understand them. But there's also a macro lens. It's a wide-angle lens so that you can also see the big picture. To suggest the sympathetic person who refuses to drown with you or permit you to manipulate them into your deadly waters has no compassion, well, that is short-sighted. If you say a sympathetic person who refuses to drown with you or they won't let you manipulate them, that is short-sighted minimally, and it is fatal to the victim in its worst case. Now, what you'd want to stay away from is that you want to make sure uh, that you don't get into a process of ignorant escalation. You see, ignorance can escalate problems and relationships. That's why it's essential for you to understand this webinar. If you're not aware of the differences between empathy and sympathy, then ignorance will escalate, and these problems will become worse for you as you continue to process. See, a drowning victim will flail more if you don't jump in. So if you stand outside the water and you refuse to jump in, they're going to flail all the more, and there will be a temptation on your part to finally give up and jump in, not hold your ground. 
And that kind of ignorance and that kind of acquiescing will only escalate the problem. The tension is, is that when you're meeting with someone who is hurting, when you're talking to your teenage child who is struggling through whatever the issues may be, when you meet a trans person or a victim of, of, of some crime or so, of, of some sin, initially on the front end, the sympathetic model will be very hard uh, for them to hear. And so the pain point will be right at the beginning as you try to help them not only to understand what they're going through, the micro, but as you try to help them to understand the macro as well. And so the tension and the difficulty will be near the beginning of the process. But if you stay the course, then eventually uh, those problems and those tensions and those frustrations and those hurts will begin to minimize because you're bringing sympathetic care. But if you are empathetic, then they will like what you're telling them. And you're so focused on them and their problems, but in your heart of hearts, you know that there's something wrong with this situation, but you don't have the courage to give them that macro care. Well, they will like it in the beginning, uh, but they will learn to hate you in the end because ultimately you have not helped them. And so you have to choose where the pain point is going to be. Uh, from a sympathetic soul care provider, the pain point will be in the beginning and it will minimize. From an empathetic soul care provider, there will be minimal pain on the front end, but that kind of ignorance will escalate. So therefore, you not only need compassion, you not only need courage, but now you need competence. To, to be able to competently care for someone in a micro and a macro way, to be with them but not in there, drowning with them, uh, that takes a lot of competence. And this is where many biblical counselors fail because they do not have the competency to walk a person through a delicate and intricate problem, especially when the in intensity of the sin that has been committed against them uh, is at a magnitude where it needs that kind of competent care. But it is very easy to be gaslit. It's very easy to be manipulated to jump in with them, and we can't do that if we're going to care well. And so the drowning victim will continue to flail more and more until you finally jump in, and you cannot do that. Now, weak disciples will succumb. Weak disciples will acquiesce. Weak parents will give in to the child who wants the iPhone. I'm 10 years old. Everybody has an iPhone. Weak disciple-making parents will cave. And what will happen is that it's easy to be empathetic on the front end, but that kind of ignorance will escalate whatever relational problems this child's going to get into because they do not have the willpower, the common sense, the self-control, the wisdom to say no to sin. And now uh, they're drowning. They continue to drown in a social media cyberspace that the parents has enabled them to do because the parent was not a sympathetic parent. And in this model, the empathetic model, the hurting person has the power. And what will happen is that it will be ongoing, self-imposed incarceration for uh, that individual. And you can uh, enable, you can uh, help them in their incarceration because of not being sympathetic, choosing rather to be empathetic. Half-truths will keep them captive in their victimhood. Now, what I mean by that, 
as they're continuing to uh, talk to you about understanding them and helping them through their problems, one of the things that you want to help them to see, to understand, is that there is some legitimacy to what they're saying, but because they only see half the picture, because they only see the micro, uh, it's a half-truth. They don't see the whole picture. And their half-truths will keep them captive in their victimhood. And that's where you need that courage, that competence, and that compassion to help them to see a fuller story, the whole story. And this is where the parent needs to be strong, be competent, be compassionate, be courageous, not only understand the, the temptations of the child who's wanting the iPhone, who's struggling with fear of man, but they see that deep-seated fear of man. And they want the child to see that this is more than just getting the phone, that getting the phone is not going to solve your problems. Getting the phone is only going to escalate your problems because you have a deep-seated fear of man issue to where the phone becomes your functional God. If I can just get my phone, I will be happy. No, you won't. But those half-truths will keep them incarcerated to their victimhood. Now, there is a relativistic hierarchy that is happening in our culture today. Uh, One of the reasons that we live in so much relativism is because there is an assault on hierarchies. Uh, we believe that there is uh, equity for all. There is equality for all. We we now live in an egalitarian structure where everything is, is even, everything's the same, everybody should have the same, and so you know, I'm 10, I should have an iPhone because you're 40 and you have an iPhone, uh, for example. Or you're a girl, why can't I be a girl? You're a boy, why can't I be a boy? We, we are assaulting our hierarchies and we this new equality for all mantra that's being bandied about everywhere, we are caving to it and our hierarchical structures are being demolished to where there aren't any differences uh, between us. Now, I am not saying that one person is better than another person. Uh, We're all made in the image of God, and so as far as equality as an image bearer, Yes, we're all the same, and nobody has any leverage. Nobody has a leg up on, 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 on the Lord. We're all equal when it comes to being born, made in the image of God. But there is a hierarchical structure. Uh, there, there are um, sympathizers who can be outside and above. Uh, we don't want to cave to a, this rel demolishing a rel- relativistic hierarchies to where we're all equal and so you have to be you have to agree with me uh, you have to see it the way i see it and say it the way i say it and experience the way i experience it no if you do that then everything is going to come tumbling down the sympathizer is outside and above you and that is exactly what you want you want that hierarchy You want that person outside and above. You want that doctor outside and above, seeing things in a way that you do not. One of the great verses that communicates this idea is Psalm 40, verses 1, 2, and 3. This is what David said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction There's a hierarchy here. He was above me. He was outside of me. Uh, He was ahead of me. And he drew me up from my pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. 
and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Our soul care cannot be beholding to the demolishing of relativistic hierarchies. There cannot be an assault on hierarchies. We need to be sympathetic soul care providers. We need competence. We need to be comprehensive. We want to be outside of the people that we are serving, reaching down and lifting them up to a place that they could not imagine. When you mix legitimate abuses that came from a hierarchical situation into a relativistic culture, all right, so here are the ingredients. You take legitimate abuses and a hierarchical situation. The abuses came from a hierarchical situation, so it's an abusive parent, an abusive pastor. And so when you mix legitimate abuses that came from a hierarchical situation and you mix it into a relativistic culture, there will be visceral and hateful reactions toward anyone standing in the rightful place of authority. The soul care provider can't stand in that place of authority when a person is beholding to an empathetic model and, and they're holding on to these half-truths that I have been legitimately abused and that abuse, abuse came from a hierarchical situation and I'm a relativist and, and so I have a shifting morality and then when an authority figure comes and begins to act sympathetically uh, toward that individual, there will be visceral and hateful reactions toward anyone that tries to bring care to this type of person who is trying to build a relativistic hierarchy. Sanctification socialist is what I'm talking about. And you cannot offend them. And we are self-censoring in our culture today. Absolutely. We're self-censoring when it comes to politics. We're self-censoring when it comes to cultural dynamics. The church is self-censoring itself because we are choosing to be empathetic, to jump in with them and not speaking against them because they do not believe in that hierarchy because they are assaulting hierarchies. But a sympathetic soul care provider demands that there is a hierarchy. One of the false arguments that flows out of this kind of worldview is that you will hear someone say, well, Jesus understands me. Jesus gets me. Jesus knows me. Well, does he? I mean, I mean, really, there is some truth to that statement, but it can be a myopic truth, a short-sighted truth. You see, Jesus did take on flesh. But Jesus became a sympathetic Savior. You see, Jesus is without sin. And Jesus had no impure motives. And so in one sense, he's done little like you. He, he's never married. He's never had children. He's never smoked weed. There is an extensive list of things that would also argue that Jesus is not like you at all. It's, but sometimes when people say, well, Jesus understands me, Jesus, is get, Jesus gets me, he, he knows. Well, does he? In part, you are right, but in part, you are way wrong. In fact, you don't want Jesus to be like you. You want Jesus to be outside of you and above you. 
It's kind of like the verses that I was reading earlier in Psalm 40, verses 1, 2, and 3. Yeah, we want him to understand us, but we want him to go beyond that. We want him to be a sympathizing savior, not an empathetic one. And we want those who care for us to be very similar. Yeah, they understand you. We hope they understand you, those who disciple you well. But you don't want them to be like you. You don't want them to jump in the miry bog because they can't pull you out. You see, it's it's not so much that Jesus understands me or Jesus is going to help me. Jesus wants you to be like him, And so there is an upward momentum. He's going to pull us out. That's what we want. And so while you can say, Jesus understands me, it's also reasonable and theologically accurate to say, (laughs) in one sense, he's nothing like us. He is wholly different from us, which positions him, puts him in a place to where he can lift us out. Part of the issue here is what I call false opposites where we take two ideas and we think that they are the same, but in reality, they are opposites. A false opposite are pairs of words or pairs of ideas that give the misleading impression that they have opposite meanings. Let me explain. There are Los Angeles Laker fans and there are Boston Celtic fans And some people would say that these are opposites. But in reality, that's not true. These are false opposites. They're not opposites at all because they're both basketball fans. They pull for different teams, but they are basketball uh, basketball fans. And so they're not opposites. That's a false opposite. A true opposite would be Laker fans and Celtic fans versus people who don't like basketball at all. That would be a true opposite. And so a false opposite is thinking that Laker fans and Celtic fans are opposite. In a, in a smaller sense, they are because they pull for opposing teams. But in a greater sense, they are the same because they love the same genre or the same sport. Now, how does that apply to counseling? sanctification, doing the work of discipleship. Some people would think that understanding a person and correcting a person are opposites. They're not. Understanding a person and correcting a person aren't opposites. Those are false opposites. Both of those things belong within the same genre of soul care. Just like a Laker fan and a Celtic fan are not opposites. They're false opposites. They belong to the same group, basketball fans. Understanding a person and correcting a person belongs to the same group called soul care. But some people are beholding to this idea of false opposites. Empathy does away with the victim-center construct. You see, whenever, this is going to be tough trudging for some because there are some people who have been hurt so badly that it will be hard for them to hear what I'm saying and I'll just trust that the Spirit of God will work in their hearts or work in their hearts soon so that they can hear. 
But again, as I was saying earlier, that when you mix legitimate abuse within a hierarchical structure, authority structure, there can be visceral and hateful responses from people who have experienced that abuse. Therefore, they cannot hear what I'm about to say. But in every victimization, in every situation where a person has been hurt by someone, you have this tension of the victim-center construct that they have been victimized by something, but also they have a role to play in their sanctification, that nobody is purely innocent. Now, I am not saying that they are the cause of what happened. For example, let me illustrate. My father victimized me a zillion times from the time I was born as early as I can remember, whatever year that was, however old I was, two, three, four years of age, until the time that he died when I was 19. For nearly two decades, my dad victimized me, and I was not the cause of that. Uh, he did that. He made choices. That is the victim. Now, did I sin during that process? Well, I have to be honest. Yes, I, I did. And so though I was not the cause, I did have sinful responses. I had to work through sinful issues that were in my own soul. But the empathetic soul care provider will not go there. They're afraid to. They don't have the courage. Maybe they don't have the competence to go there. And so they would not be beholding to the victor center construct. Because, again, when you, when you start, so let's say in our culture, for example, where you have uh, this whole racism claim that's being made, if you say there is no racism, uh, well, then you're going to get into a huge argument. Uh, if you say, yes, there is racism, but we need to think about it this way, you know, how are we responding? I mean, you're burning down a building. Uh, you know, you're destroying a city, you know, because of racism. To, to do that well... Uh, then, yes, there is legitimate racism that goes on in our country. And then we have a responsibility before God and before each other to respond well, And even though there is racism going on in our culture. But there are some people, because they're so empathetic, and they behold into an empathetic worldview, that you can't bring both of these points, and that makes it difficult. And you may find that it's not possible to even counsel a person like this because they're not at the place in their journey where they are willing to receive soul care from a sympathetic uh, construct. Now, the medical community understands this for the most part. I mean, I talked about affirmative therapy a while ago where the medical community does not understand this, and, and they will not uh, speak to the responsibility of the individual. They will just uh, put the accent mark on this person's a victim because he feels like a girl, so therefore I'm just going to deal with the victim side of it. I'm not going to deal with the personal responsibility side. But for the most part, the medical community historically does understand the victim center construct. You see, if you have a false opposite that says empathy is always believing, always kind, according to that person's understanding of believing in kind, and never challenging, then you have suppressed the truth and you'll never be free. False opposites always suppress the truth. And the false opposite that I'm talking about here in this illustration is, is that we do want to understand, but we also want to bring care, that corrective care and compassion for what they're going through. Those things are not 
uh, opposites. Those are false opposites. But if we're beholding to the false opposite, then we will not give them the fullest extent of the care that they deserve. Now, one of the dangers with this idea of providing soul care in a sympathetic way and caving to empathy is that we will not provide care. And there's a lot of empathetic soul care providers who run from the crime. They run from the situation because they're unwilling to speak into it in a sympathetic way. Running from the crime creates a crime. We can't do that. And I know this is hard, and I'm not saying that every person has the ability or the competency to get into, get inside a problem, especially a complex problem, like, say, where a person has been abused. I am not saying that every person has the ability to do that. That is a huge issue within the biblical counseling world, because when the problems become more complex, uh, there are biblical counselors who are not good at what they do, and either they botch up sympathy and they come across as harsh or they come across as stamping verses on people, or they're empathetic and they run from it and they don't provide the the deep level soul care that they need, and so they run from the crime, but they end up creating another crime. They complicate the pre-existing problem because they're unwilling or unable to deal with the problem the way that they should. What we need are sturdy disciple makers. That's the way that I I like sharing it or talking about it. We need sturdy. And that word sturdy, I mean, you can can feel that word. It's almost like automatopoeia, that you can feel the very word, that this is the kind of person that we need. A sturdy person that will not be gaslit, a sturdy person who will not be manipulated, but a sturdy person who will be compassionate. They will not be harsh. They will not be unkind in any way, but they are willing, and that's the kind of person that you want. That is a Christ-like example. Christ is a sturdy person. You will not manipulate him. I, I remember uh, when I went through a, a a divorce, as horrific as that was, I, I was a victim of something that happened to me, but I was also sending my brains out, and I was trying very hard. Now, I didn't. I wouldn't say it this way back then, but as I look back on it, basically I was trying to manipulate God. I, w- I was trying to manipulate Him to see things my way and to to bring things to a resolution the way that I wanted it. And I written about. I've wrote about that in my. Uh, book suffering well how to steward god's most feared blessing and you can you can read that journey but there's a portion of that book where i talk about where i was trying to manipulate god to see things my way i was full tilt neck deep in an empathetic empathetic soul care model but god would not budge and that's what job was saying in chapter 23 who can move him Now, I would never say that God was not compassionate toward me, but he was sturdy, and he was not going to budge. And so you can be compassionate and courageous and competent, but you will find that there are some people who have been baptized in empathy, and they cannot hear what I'm saying right now. I was baptized in empathy. Out of ignorance, out of whatever, I didn't know any better, 
I, I, I believe that you need to jump in, and we're both going to drown. And I'm so thankful that God would not jump in, but he would lift me out. It was painful on the front end, but now I'm, I'm living uh, a, a life that I am just, as, as I've told many people, I am the luckiest man in the world, to quote Lou Gehrig. Of course, I'm a Christian, so I would say uh, I am the most sovereign, lucky person in the world so that I don't offend those who don't believe in luck. But I have a blessed life. Uh, but changing from an empathetic worldview to a sympathetic worldview was one of the hardest things that I have ever done. Competence invest, investigates thoroughly, and it's important to hear that. This is not a sloppy, haphazard way of doing soul care. No, you investigate the situation thoroughly, meaning in inside the problem, you understand them, the pinpoint, the micro, but also the macro. And so you do a complete, full investigation. That's what you want. Like when the police come at a traffic accident, you don't want them to just hear one side of the story, you know, and, and you want them to investigate the thing thoroughly. You want them to get all the data possible. Now, some of that data may not be flattering. Some of that data may say that, you know, you, you're not only the victim in this situation here, but you're the sinner as well. But that's what we're, if we're really honest with ourselves, then we want that kind of complete investigation, and competence will do that. We're at the end of the webinar, and I do want to ask a few questions as I wrap up. This webinar has been is titled Sympathy and Empathy. You need to know this. I trust that this information has been beneficial. I know it will be complicated for some souls to hear, and I do understand that. If you want to interact with us about uh, anything that I've shared with you thus far, I want you to do that. I really do. And I want you to come to our ministry and let's start uh, working it out. We want to help you the best we can, even though I do realize that it is, it is a, a cyber way of, of helping you. And so with these things in mind, let's look at a few questions as I finish up the webinar. Number one, what is your definition of, of empathy? If you're listening by audio or even by video here without playing the tape back, Without going back to the beginning of uh, the webinar, what is your definition of empathy? Perhaps it would be good for you to uh, write down on a piece of paper, to type it out, uh, what, what it is based on what you have heard. Be as brief and succinct as you possibly can. But what is your definition of empathy? And then what is your definition of sympathy? Go through the same process of writing it out, typing it out, or maybe talking to someone that you're with, that you're watching this webinar with or you're listening to the audio. And then how have your definitions changed from the beginning and end of this talk? And so maybe go back and think what you thought empathy was and what you thought sympathy was. And maybe you thought they were the same, that there weren't any differences. But the question is, how have your definitions changed from the beginning and end of this talk? If you're watching this webinar in a small group context, which I, I do recommend, for some small groups, I think it would be helpful also for a group of biblical counselors. If you're watching it, then maybe this is the time to stop, and you all have a discussion about this. What is your definition of empathy? What is your definition of sympathy? How have your definitions changed from the beginning and end of this talk? Number two, how do you need to change in light to what you have, of what you have heard 
And so some of you, I know some of you will be struggling with self-censoring. Uh, some of you uh, struggle with fear of man, and you don't have the courage, or at least don't have the courage at this juncture to be able to bring a more sturdy kind of soul care uh, to an individual. And that's something that you want to grow into. Uh, but please understand that we all have a capacity. We all have a ceiling. I have a ceiling. You have a ceiling. And when it comes to more complex cases, it could be that you just don't have that ceiling uh, to where you can counsel those complex cases so you can't change to that level. You can grow in courage, but not so much so that you can deal with complex counseling cases. And so I don't want you to beat yourself up, saying I can never be that way. And so there is a sweet spot here, and I don't know where it is with you. Some people drive past their headlights, meaning that they are doing more than they are competent enough to do. And someone needs to come alongside them and let them know that this is just, this is not your cup of tea. And you can do mid level soul care. You can do discipleship within your family, within your marriage, within your close network of friends. But when it comes to complex cases, you're driving beyond your headlights and you don't have the ability to do this. And this is a huge problem in the biblical counseling movement. It's a huge problem with people that don't have a clear, sober self-assessment of who they are, and they don't have anyone, they don't have a sympathetic soul care provider in their life that will speak truth to them, that will walk them through and let them know that, you know, calling does not, I mean, a desire does not equal calling. And so maybe they need to bring it down a notch and, and not enter into these complex cases because they don't have the ability to do it. But then... For many of us, we do need to grow in courage because that is a common problem that we don't have enough courage and we need to be more sturdy in our disciple-making practices. And so the question is, how, you, how do you need to change in light of what you have heard? Number three, do you see yourself as a person who can give directive, caring counsel to hurting folks while knowing that some of that advice may sting a little? Now, there's a couple issues here is that some people can say, I, I, I see myself as a directive, caring, soul care provider, and I know that it stings a little, but I'm harsh. I'm harsh when I, I do it. And they may not have sober self-awareness to realize how they are hurting people unnecessarily. And so they can have a, 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 over, uh, a, a overblown understanding of who they are, uh, overblown interpretation of their skill set, and they could see themselves as directive and they can provide caring counsel, but maybe somebody needs to come alongside them and say, well, you're, you, you, you're over-directive and you're, you're too harsh and it shouldn't sting the way it stings because uh, you're, you're either not good at it or uh, you need to grow into it. But the question is, do you see yourself as a person who can give directing, caring counsel? Now, it may be that that's something that you can grow into, and repetition is a thing. This is something that we teach our students 
all the time, that we want to get our reps in. We want to start small and continue to build up until we finally have somewhat of a good idea where our seedling is. But there's no question that the majority of the folks that go through our mastermind program are not able to give this kind of directive, caring counsel. And I hope, by the grace of God, that we'll always be there to help them to assess themselves in a sober way to help them realize what their potential is, but also help them to realize what their ceiling is as well. Because when it gets into the complex cases, we don't want to have an overblown interpretation of our skill set. We don't want to damage people. Question number four. Perhaps you are a certified biblical counselor, and if you're listening by audio, I put uh, that, that label in quotation marks, a certified biblical counselor, which only means you have received some training, but you have a hard time counseling from a sympathetic methodology. This has been an historical problem with biblical counselors that we have been unkind, harsh, uncaring, and in some ways we have been incompetent. We don't do it well. And that's why I say perhaps you are, quotation mark, certified biblical counselor. And then I caveat, which only means you have received some training. Will you, here's the question, will you honestly classify yourself according to who you are, not according to your training, not according to that certificate that you have, or whatever else may be on your wall, Not according to your ambitions, but will you soberly classify yourself according to who you really are? And then what are your conclusions? Now, there's there's three ways to do this. You can spend time on your knees asking God to help you to discern where you really are in your skill set. But please understand that's going to be a subjective assessment that you're going to make And we have to be honest enough with ourselves to know that we're going to put our best spin on any assessment that we make about ourselves. That is just part of of how we are. Therefore, there's another way of doing this. There's three ways. The second way is uh, we can ask a sympathetic disciple maker how they see us, someone that actually knows us, someone who has actually experienced us. Now, if they're a sympathetic disciple maker, they will have the courage, the competence, and the compassion to tell you how they see you, realizing that, too, is a subjective assessment, but yet you're collecting more data. A person who is gospelized has nothing to fear, nothing to hide, nothing to protect. And so if you are truly gospelized, you are humble enough to seek that kind of advice from someone, even though it is subjectively derived, subjectively given, there is some data there that you want to listen to from that person who has the courage to speak the truth and love. This is something that we do in our mastermind program because we want our students, by the time they are moving toward the halfway point and toward the end of the program, we want to be clearer and clearer for how we see them so that they don't uh, go off the rails and, 
and, and miss this self-assessment, and we don't want to be we don't want to complicate that by not speaking to them in the ways that we think we understand them. And then the third way to collect this kind of data to honestly classify yourself is to ask those who have received your care. Now, this too uh, could be difficult as well because many people struggle with fear of man and they will have a hard time being honest with you, especially if they are in the classification of counselee. If, if they're a counselee, there could be an intimidation factor and they might not be able to give you uh, the information that you truly need. But those are three ways to explore how to honestly classify yourself by asking the Lord, asking a sturdy disciple maker, a sympathetic one, and then by asking those you have counseled. Another way to do that is to go back and replay the tapes of the people that you have counseled in the past. How have they responded to you? Uh, have have is there a testimony of you being harsh or unkind or incompetent? I was that way uh, years ago, and there will be people that would tell you that, that they, had, they received my counsel 20 years ago uh, when I was just, uh, just getting started. And unfortunately, I have been that way too many times in the counseling office, and that's something that uh, you don't want to be, but you also want to face that reality if it is true for you. The big idea in this webinar is if you do not have a working definition of sympathy and empathy, and more vitally, a practical application of those words, you may do much harm to those who need your soul care, need your care the most. And so this presentation was an exploration of clearing up the ambiguity between sympathy and empathy. And as I've said, if you have any questions about this, please jump on our forums and let's talk. It would be a joy to interact with you, to dialogue with you as much as we can in cyberspace about some of these issues that I've presented in this webinar. For those of you who have made it this far, uh, please hang on for another minute or two. And I want to make an appeal. If you are in a position to where you can support our ministry, please understand that this audio, for those who have listened by audio and this video, uh, it has taken a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort to put this together. I say that with joy. I say that with gratitude. I say that with an element of unbelief that God allows me to do these things. But the reason that he allows us to do, to do these things, uh, our team to do these things, is because of those who underwrite our ministry. Our aim is to always make our resources free, but we can only do that for those who, because of those who support our ministry. And so without placing guilt on you, because you're not in a position to, to support, the way that you can support us is by sharing these resources with anybody that you possibly can. Share them broadly, widely, to anyone in the world, and we would be most grateful, and that is a great way to support our ministry. Then there are others of you who can support financially, we need your support. We do. We need local churches taking us on monthly or annually, supporting us, helping us financially. It would relieve a huge burden that we have. We have so many things that we want to do, things that we're trying to accomplish, but we can only move forward uh, proportional to those who support our ministry. And then individuals, uh, who can help us with whatever amount that is, please go to our website, click the donate button, and start your support. One time, 
monthly, annually, I would really appreciate it. Thank you so much for watching this webinar. I am Rick Thomas. I've been talking about sympathy and empathy. You need to know this. Thanks again for watching. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.